welcome to Noisy Fulfillment, a Desperate Housewives rewatch podcast where we take you back in time episode by episode of ABC's Desperate Housewives. If you love what we're doing and would like to support us further than just as a listener, which we absolutely thank you for, you can really help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star review and subscribing to this podcast. That really helps people to find us because analytics equals search results. We'll also read it on the air, so if you love to hear stuff you've written on the air, here's your chance. Also, you can become a patron by contributing at any monetary level by going to anchor.fm slash noisyfulfillment. You can also buy us a virtual coffee by tipping us in our virtual tip jar at ko-fi.com slash noisyfulfillment. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash noisyfulfillment where you can comment on stuff, react to stuff, and also message us. You can also email us at noisyfulfillment at gmail.com. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Dr. Warren. How are you? Uh, never going to get tired of that. I'm great. And it's, you know, I don't know. I'm having a lot of feelings because here we are in the season finale. Yes. And so much happened. So today we're breaking down episode 23, season one, One Wonderful Day, written by John Party, Joey Murphy, Mark Cherry, Tom Speziali, and Kevin Murphy. So all people we've seen before, it took all of them to make this episode. And directed by Larry Shaw, first aired May 22nd, 2005. So do you want to take us to our last summary of the season, Amanda? Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. So we get clarity on a lot of different things, but I'm still left with some questions. So we find out how Deirdre came to land into the toy chest. Very interesting. And then we find out that things don't go so well for for Rex in the hospital. And we see a really nice moment with all of the ladies. Zach and Felicia have a little bit of a blow up. Susan gets a little forceful on her voicemails to Mike after reading Martha's journal. Mm -hmm. Gabby ends up testifying in court for Carlos and chaos ensues. And yeah, Lynette and Tom have a have an issue at the pizza joint, which I feel like I have memory of the pizza joint happening later mm-hmm. on. Yeah, so lots and lots happens. Mike and Paul have a little experience out in a desert slash salt mountain area. I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> I don't even know. Like literally everything happens. So All right, well, let's get into it then. Let's just jump so in. So in the cold open, we have, my name is Mary Alice Young. And before I died, my life was filled with love, laughter, friendship, and sadly, secrets. The secrets had begun 15 years earlier when my name was Angela Forrest. And I was living a life of quiet desperation. I'd feel it every morning as I made breakfast for my husband. And during the errands I ran in the afternoon, even at my work every evening. To me, every day was gray and meaningless. And then one night, there was color. And so we have uh, Deirdre coming to Mary Alice and Paul's house in need of money. And she says she needs food and other stuff for her baby. Mary Alice offers to take her, but Deirdre kind of wants cash on the spot, right? She says she wants to sell her her watch for $50. She said... She says 50 50 bucks. bucks. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Deirdre said she was that Mary Alice was the only person at rehab to treat her like a person. And then as Mary Alice is saying, you know, I just, I can't do it. I can't give you any money. And she opens the door to, to have Deirdre leave. Deirdre offers to sell her her baby, Dana, because she knows Mary Alice can't have her own. And Mary Alice is thinking about it and closes the door as Deirdre asks how much money she keeps in the house. I don't even know what to say here. I feel like they 
had Deirdre come in like scratching at her arms and wild eyed and angry and agitated with the baby. And I didn't even know as I was getting ready to like type some notes, I was like, I, my notes say literally, I don't even know what to say here. Right. I mean, there's a lot going on, right? Because it seems like she has some connection with Mary Alice. Deirdre has, has like imprinted almost on Mary Alice from the time that she spent in the rehab facility that Mary Alice works at that Felicia Tillman also works at. And she does feel, she said that she felt like everybody else was mean to her or didn't treat her like a person, just treated her like an addict. And Mary Alice wasn't that person. And she obviously knows information about Mary Alice not being able to have a baby. And that's pretty intimate. And I I would think in spaces like that, like I, I don't have any experience on any side of that, but it would surprise me that somebody would go into such detail about their ability to have a baby. Maybe it was that Deirdre was pregnant while there. Well, she would have had to have been pregnant while there. And maybe Mary Alice was like, oh, I always wanted to have a baby, but couldn't. But that just seems like a really personal detail to share in that type of space if you're the clinician or somebody working in the office. Yeah, I don't know how long ago it was that Deirdre was in rehab. Dana is 10 months old and it's 1990. But I mean, she could have been pregnant when she was in rehab. Most rehab, I feel like they try to do 90 days inpatient so that on your, so that you get your 90 day chip before you leave. And that's supposed to lead to less recidivism, if I'm saying that word right. I think I remember, I think I remember that. And with that being said, it does seem that Mary Alice takes her up on that offer. And we, we couldn't possibly know how much money that they keep in the house, but she obviously gives her some money. And then we cut right to Deirdre being rushed into the hospital. Now that part is weird to me because she's on a stretcher in the hospital, but Felicia Tillman is there and Mary Alice is there. And that doesn't feel like, you know, that's a hospital, like an ER versus rehab. You wouldn't rush somebody right. to rehab, yes. right? Right. I wouldn't think so. so I wouldn't think that rehab has like hard medical, unless it was a rehab center within a hospital, but is that a thing? I didn't think that was a thing. I thought inpatient facilities like that are kind of standalone. Yeah. So nonetheless, but it seems that, so we have Deirdre being rushed in. Felicia is irate asking where that baby is. And she's actually wearing a white coat, which makes me think that she's not just a nurse, that she's like maybe the nurse manager or something. She's always, she's kind of giving people orders. She's irate asking where the baby is. She has a 10 month old baby. Where is she? Angela overhears, Mary Alice overhears, and looks like this is her cue that she needs to run because the police officer says, we'll put a police officer at her bedside. If she wakes up, we'll ask her what she did with her baby. And that would be really a problem for Angela slash Mary Alice and company. So it looks like- Well, thank goodness for that calendar that had- Welcome to Fairview on it so that they knew where to go. Okay, so you go somewhere that you've heard of at work. I mean, I guess tangentially, would you ever think that they're just going to look for you there? I don't know. But I mean, uh, Felicia Tillman seems to visit there. So maybe that's not where I would have chosen to go either. But nonetheless, she it looks like that's what she does. She's inspired by that calendar. And she... And Paul and Zach arrive on Wisteria Lane. And Mary Alice says, we will go ahead. Coincidentally, on the same street that Felicia's sister lives on. No kidding. I mean, again, Fairview, you'd think there's more than one street in Fairview. But okay, maybe that's fair. Maybe she thought it's not, it's a place. It's not like I would be living on the same street as Felicia Tillman's sister. But Mary Alice says, we were as happy as any family could be. 
until one night, three years later, when there was a knock at our door and we see deer. Wait, pause right there. I noticed the moving van was Moroni moving. Did you Yo, see that? So it's a place in central Utah, but the name struck me because um, as a fan of musicals, the Book of Mormon, oh, yes. there's you know, I and the angel Moroni. So I saw that on the van and I was like, oh my God, they're really trying to sell that they moved from Utah because they literally have a moving van that's from a place in Utah. So nice. Awesome catch, Amanda. <laughs> well, you know, it's that Book of Mormon song that's in my head all the time. But I really appreciated that attention to detail yeah. that they absolutely before Book of Mormon was ever even conceived. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. When was that? I want to say it was my first year teaching, so like 2010, 2011. Book of yeah. Mormon. But but like the play when it was really big. I don't even know if it was that long okay. ago. I think it's been more recent since that. I mean, I know it's out for you know its third and fourth run, but it could have been that long ago. We'll have to look. Oh. I'll get on that. Okay, so the doorbell yeah. rings, or sorry, a knock at the door, and then knock at the door. Yeah, and it's Deirdre and Mariella says, and I was desperate once again, and that's where they cut the quote. So it's a good thing that Deirdre is what a private investigator <laughs> after she survives her drug overdose. Like, how does she find them? So when we get to there, she talks about spending a lot of her father's money, but she's also clean, apparently. And so she never got in touch with her father to tell her she was clean and tell her sister that she was clean. And, you know, maybe you burn so many bridges, but she is still able to spend her father's money when she was desperate for 50 bucks in U- back in Utah. Wow. Yeah, there's something there. All right. Ooh, so then we cut to the present day and the phone calls start at five o'clock in the morning and all of the girls rush to the hospital to sit with Bree. Because Danielle called all of the neighbors. So Danielle, who's sometimes there, sometimes not there, was there. And the girls rushed to the hospital. And Bree is kind of like, please don't say anything nice to me because I might break. And I get that 100,000%. Because whenever I'm in, in stress, the minute someone, if I'm holding it together and somebody says something nice, then that's when I fall apart. Right? 100% of the time. But I love that they rush there totally disheveled in their pajamas to support their friend because that's what you do. And I, I wrote that in my notes too, that like this might be the most intimate, beautiful moment of the whole season for me is that it's a middle of the night phone call and you get there and you don't care that you look a mess. And yeah, it, it's that one. It got me. I kind of teared up a little bit thinking about that. Yeah. So Bree's like, we can't keep talking about this. Change the subject. So Susan, they're all kind of sitting there and Susan's like, oh, I know. I found Mrs. Huber's journal and Mike's stuff. And I think she knew Mary Alice's secret and was blackmailing her. And I'm surprised they didn't like refer back to when they found that letter in the beginning of the season. Like, did they meant, I don't even think they mentioned it. Certainly not specifically. Maybe it's assumed because I know what you did. It makes me sick. I'm going to tell like maybe, but I agree, um, especially in a serialized show that contextualization would have helped. Right. Right. We remember it, but they, I'm surprised they weren't like, Oh my gosh, that's probably what the letter was about. No. Or maybe they were, we just got like the, you know, a bridge version of their conversation. But I love how Lynette kind of looks at Susan and is like, yeah, that'll, that'll do it. There, that's there it is. There. We need it. We could have talked about gardening. We could have talked about prices of groceries. We could have talked about our kids. But, well, I guess maybe we can talk about our kids because that leads to discussions of Rex. But, yeah, but you know what we should really talk about? Blackmail. Yeah, 100%. Oh. 
So over at Paul and Zach's, Zach wants Felicia to leave him alone. Felicia says that it's just not that easy. You can't just stay here until your dad gets back because your dad's not coming back. And Felicia is going to take over for Paul as if you would just switch out one parent for the other, which I understand is an irony based on how Zach came to be in one family versus another. But Felicia, again, it's that benevolent, but just like below the surface, that faux pleasant, there's something scary there for him, right? And she says, you know, let's go home. I'm going to make you some pudding. And that's the wrong word for her to use here. Yeah. She's being so like aggressive and like, like he's laying in his bed and she like just march. She's not even tentative. She just like marches in and like flops down like too close to him. And she's playing with fire because he's a real loose cannon. So you didn't, there's no pun intended there, but he has been known to set fire to people's kitchens. Oh, there's totally no pun intended, but I, that that worked also nicely. And so on their way down the stairs, Zach hits Felicia with a hockey stick and says, what did you do to my dad? So I guess he won't get that pudding. Is pudding, like, pudding's your go-to? Like, let's go home. I'm going to make you pudding. I think that just shows the generation gap. And also, like, there's not a, a need to to genuinely get connected with him and know what he likes and what he doesn't like. Because you know if that were Brie, she would know what your favorite snack is, and that's what she would have. Right. Ready to go. Hmm. Yeah. Scary. That hockey stick impact sound. I didn't think she was going to come out. The Foley artist was working overtime on that one. So then we go over and we meet the Apple Lights. Edie comes over and is like, oh, I'm so curious to meet you buying a house without ever seeing it. And she's trying to say like, you know, let me, let me come in and show you now that you bought the house. Let me come in and show you where you need to put the buckets when it rains. And they, Mrs. Applewhite and her son are like moving in front of the door. They're like, nope, we're good. Just totally shuts Edie down. And Edie's like, okay. At one point, Mrs. Applewhite's son calls Edie ma'am, and Edie says, that's for middle-aged women, and looks over the hedge and points at Susan. Like her, you can call her ma'am anytime you want. I feel like that was the only piece there that was funny. The rest of it was just, these two people do not want her anywhere near eyesight inside of their house. And they end with, people are very friendly in this neighborhood. Yes, yes, they are. So we know... Something not good is happening inside that house or it will be happening inside that house. I love it when we're at the beginning of a story arc and they're planting all the seeds about what's going to happen. You can just imagine when they pitch this as the last the last episode is you really have to buy the next season because you want to know what's going on with those apple lights, don't you? Yeah, for yeah, sure. Alfie right. Woodard is just so great there. Yes. He's perfect for the neighborhood. She's going to be able to play her cards very close to the chest, and she's in good company there, right? So over at Susan's, Susan calls Mike and leaves a voicemail. I couldn't not read it. That's my favorite answer. I, you know, I know that you, I found Mrs. Hoover's journal at your, in your stuff and I couldn't not read it. So I know about the blackmail. It's just also nonchalant and casual, but I love that. I always love the double negative. I couldn't not read it or, you know, "Mm, that's not, not you. Those are like my favorite my favorite ways of breaking news to people. So she's leaving voicemail after voicemail, another and another, and then an apology voicemail where she says, you know, I'm sorry, I kind of let my worry get ahead of me there. But that voicemail gets interrupted by Mike, who has received the messages. (laughs) 
And um, when Susan asked, well, how did you even get the journal? Mike says, Mrs. Hoover, Mrs. Hoover's sister gave it to me. And it's very important to Susan. You know, I think we need to give it to the police. And Mike immediately agrees saying, yeah, absolutely. When I get back from this plumbing emergency in quotation marks, we'll make an appointment. And you have Susan in the ironic statement category. I just have a feeling that Paul Young is in the middle of all of this. And we pan to Paul being tied up in the back of Mike's truck with his mouth taped over. I love how Susan, in this conversation where her husband, or her, sorry, her partner is on this plumbing emergency, she's trying to solve this mystery with not a whole lot of information other than what's in this journal, but also her just general creep factor when it comes to Paul Young, she's really rushing to judgment here in just casually in conversation. Yeah, I agree. She's had it out for Paul for a long time though. Anything that gets Paul in trouble would make her happy. Absolutely. It'll feel justifying. Yeah, very validating, right? I knew there was something shifty about him. I was wrong about it three times, but on this fourth time, I really got it right. Yeah. So then we go to the courthouse where Gabby has shown up with some clothes for Carlos and she says she'll testify in exchange for Carlos doing all of the work when it comes to the baby getting up in the middle of the night, doctor's appointments, feedings. And Carlos is like, wait a minute, I thought we were going to breastfeed. And Gabby's like, well, you know, if you can swing that, more power to you. We're not putting a car seat in my Maserati. She's, she is like, I'll carry this child, but you will do all of the work. And he seems like he's willing to do it. Obviously, he doesn't want to go to prison. So anything to save himself because he realizes that it's looking like hate crimes. He says at one point, beating up a second gay guy looks bad. And Gabby says, yeah, in some circles, beating up anyone's frowned upon, you know, homosexual or not. So Gabby offers him a lifeline here, but definitely with a big price. Definitely. But I want to put it out that my husband made me, you know, he wasn't under investigation for a hate crime or anything, but my husband offered me a similar exchange at one point when I was pregnant with my daughter. He said that if I would just do the diapering, he would do literally everything else. Which I know as a human, no one person can do that all themselves without going crazy. When there's another person available to to help you, you will just eventually give in and help the other person even if you make that deal. But I didn't make the deal because I was so 25 and self-righteous about, no, that's not how parenting works. And I wouldn't take that deal no matter what, but it would have been a great, it would have been a great deal because diapering is not that big of a deal to me. He did do Later on, what I think about other things that he did, like the lion's share of potty training, he was excellent at. I was horrible at. When she swallowed a penny and he had to figure, we had to get the penny back by any means necessary. He did all of that work. And so, yeah, way to go, Warren. Way to go. Anyway, so take that. If you have that deal, go ahead and take it because nobody's ever going to be able to stick to it anyway. Go ahead. So over at a pizza place, Lynette's out on a, is on an outing with the kids. It's apparently not a school day or after the school day. I don't know where. But again, we never know the timeline in this, but she has all of the kids and they're at a pizza place. And Lynette spots Tom playing air hockey with kids when he would normally be at work, right? Wearing work clothes. Wearing work clothes. Yeah. So he got up and did the pretense of going to work. Also, he went home last night after cleaning out his desk and just didn't tell Lynette about it. Or did he not come home? She would she would have started with, why didn't you come home last night if he hadn't come home last night? So there's just been this ruse. 
maybe. And I, I don't know, like, I almost want to, as you say that, I almost want to do a rewind and see like, what was he wearing oh. when he left work? Was it that same getup? I don't know. But it was right at the end of the last episode right. when he was packing up his box of stuff. Yeah, right? it, was, yeah, it, it was dark. The the cleaning crew was already yeah. there and everything. So I would have assumed that he went home late, but she would still have noticed if he hadn't come home at all. Yeah. But sure. anyway, I digress. Um, he says he quit his job because Lynette sabotaged his promotion, which led to Annabelle being promoted over him. And Lynette immediately gets everything and says, okay, I get it. Let's go home and talk about this. But Tom refuses and he tells her to go home before he says something he's going to regret. I like that Lynette doesn't try to lie about it. Like she's, she's like, yeah, we need to talk about this instead of, I never said that. That's not what I meant. Blah, blah, blah. Like she really is like, yeah, we need to talk about this. Tom, I hate you to death. This is a really interesting way to do self care in the middle of lying to your wife about going to work. But to be fair, if he's saying leave before we say I say something I'll regret, probably he was still angry when he left, and that's why he didn't talk about it at home. Like he's not at the spot where he can talk about it. Yet. Right. And I, yeah, I appreciate knowing oneself to the point that this is not going to be a productive conversation right now. So I'm going to need some time. However, he also has a whole plan for how this day is going to go. After he's done with air hockey, he's going to get some ice cream. Then he's going to go rent a boat and he's going to do anything he wants. And for me, I just, I come to it from an economic place of, um, we're about to have some money troubles right quick. So who's working? Um, how are we spending money on boats and <laughs> all of the things? Right. But nonetheless, that's where we are. Yeah. So then we go over to the hospital where Bree is talking to Rex, who's going to be going into surgery. And she's talking about, he asks her what she's thinking about. And she says, she's thinking it's time to start the spring cleaning. And she lists the things she's going to do. And then Rex is like, and then you'll, the last task you'll do is polish the silver. So she tells the story of why she polishes the silver last because her was it her great aunt her aunt fern i don't know if it's a great aunt. her aunt fern right says gave it to them or gave it to them but or talks about how the best is yet to come and so when she's polishing the silver it makes her think about how you know the best is yet to come for them and rex is really starting to grow i know just timing he really notices and pays attention and i think that that is that for me is my love language when someone pays attention and notices without me having to sit, like hold up large cue cards that say, here's what happens next. Here's what I do. Here's what I like. I like when somebody like really notices. So Rex is like, we, I have some things I want to say. I'm so sorry about everything. I'd want to say these things just in case. And Bree's like, can we just, can we just call it even and say like, everything's fine. And they have a re- like then maybe the nicest moment in the whole series so far. And this is one of those, I think they call it a getting kitten out of the tree kind of moment where it's deeply humanizing to the point that you're really worried that something terrible is going to happen to that character, which it does, right? I feel like in if you go back and look at all episodes of Lost, when somebody's doing something really, really nice and they play the melodic music and they're getting a, they're saving somebody or they're returning a lost puppy to a child, they're going to die like any minute. Mm. So that I agree. It's a deeply cute moment between the two of them. And I remembered back to my own right before I got married. So when Bree says that her aunt Fern told her, you know, she said, I'm so happy 
that I'm getting married. And she said, just, you know, keep in mind, there will be hard times. And remember, even in the hard times that the best is yet to come, that there's going to be light at the end of this, whatever that light looks like. And I remember somebody saying something similar. They're like, yeah, but hard times will come in your marriage. So remember these things and have have these like snapshots of times that were good and keep letters that you wrote to each other and cards that you gave to each other so that you can remember those times because there will be hard times in your marriage and there are. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have those little touch points that you can, something that's real that you can go back to, to kind of ground yourself when you're starting to, I don't know, whatever these hands mean, but you know. It just, like you said, it really seems that when they get out of this, they're going to have a different relationship and that's going to be wonderful. And yeah, Rex is growing on you just in the nick of time. Just before he dies. I know. But I mean, anybody who's seen this episode knows that he dies at the end of it. I don't think we're spoiling it. So at Susan's, Carl is picking up Julie and he asks if she's going to go live in sim with the plumber. I have so many questions. Number one, haven't we established that he's probably going to move in with her because Julie's stuff is all there. He's also renting that house while he's fixing it up. And let he is who was without sin cast the first stone over there, Carl. Right. Yeah, Carl's shut. Susan's Susan's like, funny you should mention sin. I think adultery falls into that category. And he says, well, I'm just concerned about Julie. I don't want somebody around her all the time. And Julie says, you know, don't mess this up. I like him and he likes us. And Carl's, the last thing that Carl can get in there is, oh, he's still a plumber. Such a dick. Plumbers are people who have like, are highly trained people who- Make a- do an important job and make a good great living and have a great, I mean, if you're union, you have great, uh, you have a great pension at the end of this rainbow. I mean, that doesn't give me a break. What do you want me to do? Call him an ambulance chaser? Like you've had a successful legal practice based on the fact that you know how to help people who are doing crappy things because you do crappy things. Right. Right. They speak your language. So Julie reminds Susan to feed Bongo. So Susan goes over to Mike's house And there's Creepy Zach with a gun. And I feel like we just knew this was going to happen. So he's got Susan at gunpoint. And yeah, so of course, Edie comes over because she's found out about Felicia being attacked. So she comes over and knocks on the door and sees Susan sitting there and starts yelling at Susan. I see you like, don't even try to hide. And so Susan comes and answers the door. And Edie asks if she can come in. And so she's warning everyone about Felicia. And Susan tries to mouth to her that Zach has a gun on her, but Edie doesn't get it. I love so. I love that back and forth where where Edie's <laughs> trying to understand what Susan is mouthy to her. And she said, I can stick what up my <laughs> Oh yes. gosh. Yes, definitely what she's hearing or seeing is colored by what she knows Susan feels towards her and quite frankly, what she feels towards Susan. For sure. So get Edie out of the way and Susan finds out that Zach is going to kill Mike because he thinks that Mike has killed his father. So he hurt Felicia to get answers out of her, which he got. And Susan's sitting there and kind of like eyeing all these different possible things that she could use as a weapon against Zach and is like, I think I'm going to just get up and get some water. And he's like, I wish you wouldn't because he is smarter than her when it comes to you know, grabbing a weapon and hitting somebody with it, which just seems like what she's intending to do with, what was it, like an antler and all kinds of yes. things. Oh. Ready to go to the courthouse? 
Sure. Take us there. So over at the courthouse, Gabby testified that she falsely led Carlos to believe she was having an affair. And I mean, the, the jurors are just mostly the male jurors are just hanging on her every word that Carlos understands and look, knows how men look at me and I didn't make it any easier. And I have just been lacking attention lately. So I thought that if he thought I was having an affair, he would desire me more. And the judge is like, she mentioned something about having been convicted and the judge is like, no one's been convicted. And she's like, Oh no, no, I'm talking about the other. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. You think that in uh, a deposition or anything that they would have done pre-trial that his, his lawyer would have really prepared her for, Hey, let's not mention our other, other arrests. Yes. Our other conviction uh, for, man, we've already forgotten. His, I've already forgotten his crime. Forced labor. No. Yeah. Uh, it was like basically illegal labor practices yeah. for sure. Yeah. So anyway, Gabby says, get it? Carlos is an angry, jealous Neanderthal, but he's not a gay basher. Let's look on the positive. And the judge does say, he calls uh, both members of counsel up to the stand, and he says, I don't think this is a hate crime. Meanwhile, John arrives and whispers. Again, it's way too easy for people to just go right up to the defendant. I think that there are rules about things like this, but John arrives. That's what I said. Then that somebody just roll up and address Carlos in court. Right. So John arrives and kind of whispers sweet nothings into Carlos's ear to the tune of, you beat up the wrong guy. Didn't you think it was strange you had the only lawn on Wisteria Lane that needed to be mowed three times a week? And Carlos just explodes. And I will kill you. I will kill you. And you know what? I don't know if they assumed that the guy that came up to him was gay too. But man, this is not looking good. All these young, attractive men that Carlos is going to kill, apparently. John, why are you so dumb? You are protected, man. Like, what are you getting out of this? He He's so trying to do the right thing and come clean and be who Gabby is. That his, how, is that his motive? I don't know. But I feel like how many times, like Gabby has told him so many times, like there is no future yes. for us. I don't even know. I need to unpack more of what John wants out of this because if all he wants is Gabby, I don't know. And maybe he's idealistic and thinks, I don't know. Maybe he thinks she'll come around. I don't know. I don't know. Then we go to wherever Mike right? is with Paul. Like where, what is that? I was thinking area? maybe it was a quarry. Quarry, yeah, that's the word I but, but I did in my notes, it says desert, but it's not a desert. Where are they that they have this random big quarry place? <laughs> Again, like, that's the biggest joke in all, of, in all of Eagle State. We don't know where it is. It never snows because they didn't want to pay extra for snow in production. Roses bloom when yeah. it's not time for them to bloom, all the things. So Mike's got Paul at gunpoint. And basically, Paul says, Martha Huber destroys lives for fun. She destroyed past tense lives for fun and ruins my family. And seems like Mike's like coming in angry and ready to kill him, but then like kind of is realizing that this is maybe bigger than what he thinks it is. Yeah. I don't even know. And he wants it. I mean, he does want answers, right? He's Paul makes a statement maybe later when he said, You could have done this in my backyard. Are you maybe thinking this? Are you not sure you really want to do this? And he's just not answering. But I feel that Mike wants more answers before he kills him. Right. Right. If he's going to. Is that, I mean, it looks like that's his plan, but it also, yeah, looks like he wants something more before that happens. I mean, this is a lot of work to go to just to threaten. But if you want information, maybe it looks 
promising that you're that, that person's going to die. And uh, if they give up information, maybe there's something that can be done about it. But because he's right, again, if you just wanted me dead, you could have spared all this. We, we don't have to necessarily be here for that to happen. But So at the hospital, Rex's doctor comes in with just Rex in the room. Bree's not there. She's obviously gone to work on that spring cleaning. And Rex's doctor says that his kidney function is fine, even though his potassium keeps going up and that it must be something he's ingesting. And he kind of makes the ultimate accusation there when he says, well, who prepares your meals? And haven't you been having some marital problems? Didn't she accidentally almost poison you at a salad bar? And Rex tells him to get out. He doesn't want to talk anymore about this, but please leave the chart. So do we think he still believes in Brie here? Or do we think he's... I'd love to know what Rex thinks here. It seems like he's mad that this accusation has been made. But is he mad that the accusation has been made because he thinks it's preposterous? Or he thinks he needs some time to sit with it and think about it? At first, I think you're right that he he's angry that somebody would accuse his wife of that. But then it starts to make sense to him, which I think is the bigger betrayal is that and I get it that if it all makes sense but you you're you're also right that he's been sitting with this for about 30 seconds right so we would hope he would come to a different conclusion later on but we'll see and he's been sitting with this for about 30 seconds on the heels of a really nice moment with his wife where we're even but then could you replay that last conversation where he says you know all the things I did I feel so bad and she's like consider us even could considering them even mean that she's killing him off? Like if he were to replay that through that different lens, you know what I'm saying? Like, I wonder what his thought process is. Absolutely. And also is maybe her, if he's thinking it this way, maybe she doesn't intend to kill me. Maybe she just wanted to make me weak. Maybe she just didn't want me to get better. Maybe this is a way of keeping me under her control. Maybe she has Munchausen's type yeah. proxy, you know, all the all the things that can go through your mind, I suppose. But yeah, they did just have that tender moment where she said, can't we just call it even? And maybe he even thinks in a way, she's right for getting even with me this way. Maybe she didn't expect it to go this far. But it's it's sad. Yeah, coming on the heels of what was just such a tender moment. Very sad. Yeah. So then we go to the Scavos and Tom comes home and Lynette's like, so did you have a fun day? And he's like, basically, best day ever. So he decides he needs a break. So he is mad at Lynette and says she made sure he'd go nowhere for the next 20 years. And she says, I was trying to protect our family. And he's like, well, now you've done it. I'm going to, what the heck, I'm going to stay home and be a stay-at-home dad. And you can earn the living for a while. And you can see on Lynette's face, she's like, I can go back to work? Like, what? But this ship is going to sink. Like I'm trying to picture Tom being the stay-at-home dad and holding it all together and doing doing all the things and having to be selfless for a little bit, which doesn't seem to be in his skill set from what we've seen. Although like we haven't had to see him in that space, but it seems like he's been the polar opposite of selfless all mm-hmm. along. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like Lynette is seeing this as a possible out, although she feels really bad mm-hmm. about it while he, he's like talking her into it. And it seems like she's intrigued by the idea. An idea, by the way, that she had 15 episodes ago, right? Back in the Briarcliff days, when when she was like, you know what, we do need to change something. And I was thinking back when I was working, I made a lot of money, more money than you actually. So maybe you stay home and I go make the living. 
And he said, oh, I cannot stay home with the kids. I will go insane. And she just gives him a look. And he's like, absolutely, no problem. One more talk of homeschooling. What do you want me to do? And then it was, you know, we have to sell your boat so that we can pay the bribe, I guess, <laughs> make, make the donation. But again, she actually made this argument. And I know she made it knowing he wouldn't take it. But here it is. Here it is. Ooh. So can't wait to see what that is. Oh, but the part about, yeah, I had the best day I've had in a long time. Well, then that makes me very sorry for you. You have four healthy children and a wife and a home and a job. And I'm very sorry for you that the most fun you've had is playing air hockey. With some random kids at an off-brand Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> off-brand Chuck E. Cheese. That's awesome. It was. They had that counter that had all the toys where you go trade your tickets for toys. Yeah. Uh, all of that is very Chuck E. Cheese related. I agree. Oh, now what? All right. So at Mike, Susan asks Zach, can I at least get you something to eat? And he says that it's fine if you go get him a soda. And this leads to a conversation where Susan says, for what it's worth, I think you're wrong. I don't think that Mike is going to kill your dad. And is this really what you think your mom would want you doing and I get it. You're carrying around the guilt about killing your baby sister. And Zach loses it and says, are you? How stupid are you? I'm Dana. Yeah. He's like, I never had a baby sister. My mom was some junkie and the young stole me. And everybody keeps lying to me. You know, even Julie lies to me. And that really gets Susan. She's like, oh, we do not need any anger directed towards Julie. So you can be angry at Mike. You can be angry at this person. But I, she has to like make a huge cut right there. Like, mm, yeah, we're not going to bring my daughter into this. I'm delighted that she's with her <laughs> adulterer father right now where she can be safe. Yeah. And it's me here. Yeah. Ugh. Creepy. Zach just gets creepier and creepier, more and more dangerous. And he does seem, but, and again, because he, I taught this when I taught Romeo and Juliet is that they're just old enough for the mistakes that they make to be incredibly detrimental without having as many concerns about the consequences. For sure. And so that I think that's what sure. makes Zach particularly dangerous. That impulse control is not there. Definitely. So we head back to the hospital where Rex has had a rapid decline. Mm. He's sweating and kind of panting and looks terrible and takes a piece of paper and writes a note to Bree. I understand and I forgive you. So he has come to the conclusion that Brie has been poisoning him, which is so, so sad. And so you said sad. that rapid decline, right? Is that what we're supposed to glean from that? Is that it's this brokenheartedness that is making him decline even further? Maybe, maybe. I mean, that... It happens, right? Having a positive outlook, they say, when you're in those situations, like people are going through cancer treatment and you know other things that it really is like your health and your stress level that can really affect the outcome. And it does because we cut to Brie where she is polishing the silver and she gets a call that Rex has passed away. And she's like, but his operation isn't until tomorrow. And then she says, Oh, well, thank you very much for calling and finishes polishing the silver and puts it away, smooths the tablecloth and then sits down and starts crying. And I feel when I think back to when Rex was having this heart attack and she had to go make the bed, mm -hmm. I don't believe that that was her trying to take a long time so that he would get worse. I think she really cannot 
not complete a task before she allows herself to feel the feelings or do the things. But also, I'm shocked that she was at home. I know she needed to polish her silver or whatever, but it's really surprising to me that she had gone home. No. Maybe because maybe she did because she knew he was going to have surgery the next day and she'd be in it for the long haul then. That's my thought, is that... Trying to go get the stuff done before she came in and posted up at the hospital for Yeah, a while. so that it's not on her mind as she's there and her ability to be present isn't compromised by... I haven't cleaned under the refrigerator today or so far. I haven't, uh, the shelf liner, she was very, she's like, I couldn't tell you the last time I changed our shelf liners. I can tell you the last time I changed my shelf liners. It was never ago. Right, right. Exactly <laughs> 100 and never days ago. I cannot imagine being at home and getting the call that my husband has passed away. Like I don't, even if he was in the hospital and he was ill, like I, I don't know how I would survive being at home by myself. And that's how I find out that. And particularly when that's not what you're expecting. If she was expecting anything to go wrong, she's expecting it to go wrong during the operation or in recovery that he doesn't recover from it. She's not expecting it in this time frame. And having now gone through quite a few people as like knowing that they were terminally ill and knowing that the, the end was near, I was always the same way about, I don't know what to do here because I can't not be there. I can't get a phone call that it's already happened. I have to be there when it happens. And what if I don't know when I'm allowed to go? And at the time, you know, my daughter was seven. And so, I mean, I clearly remember, okay, we have her fun fair. I can go to her fun fair for two hours and maybe I can sleep for four hours, but is that too many hours to sleep? Should I not shower? Should I, you know, all of those questions you ask yourself so that you can be in the right place at the right time. And I'm not even as neurotic, I don't think as Brie or as, uh, as obsessed as Brie with things having to be nice and, and things having to be done at home. So I can't even imagine what her thoughts are there and any regrets that she has. Definitely. And the wailing out, man, it, it just feels like she's not just crying for Rex being gone. She's crying for 17 years that's like 17 years worth of sobbing that she didn't do or she did privately and then put it in a box. If we remember back to the first time he was in the hospital and she said, Oh, these flowers need water. And she excuses herself to cry a little bit in the bathroom and then be perfect again. Right. Well, and she, you know, thinking about that loss that she's just experienced on the heels of feeling like they're ready to make a new start when he gets out of the hospital. It's going to be so different when he comes home. Yeah, it's going to be different when he comes home, but not how you thought so. So she's grieving now. Yeah, I agree. She's not even just grieving the loss of his life, but grieving the loss of the future she thought she was going to have. So sad. Tough stuff there. So back in the quarry slash desert slash wherever we are, Paul kind of gets into this you know, are you sure you know what you're doing? Have you actually ever killed someone before? Which we know the answer to that. And, you know, I don't expect any favors from you, but you could at least do me the courtesy of telling me why you're killing me. And Mike takes out a picture of him with Deirdre. And Paul immediately knows, wow, you knew Deirdre. And Mike said, you know, it feels like he's saying the things that frustrated him, right? She was selfish and she had a lot of problems, but tell me what she did to deserve dying at your hand? What is it that she did to you? Like all of us were upset and none of us killed her, but you obviously you did. So what is it that she did to you? So he does want answers. He does. He does. And I knew it. (laughs) And yes, Mary Alice comes on and says, and suddenly my husband started to spill all the beans. 
all the secrets that I died to keep, he's just letting them flow right from his mouth. Because he thinks he's about to yeah, die. Yeah, right? Or maybe he thinks this is his way of talking Mike out of killing him. I mean, he certainly doesn't have anything to lose, right? If he's really going to die, then, you know, what does it matter? It's like that monologuing, right, that we see people do at the, at the end, and then they're, they're picked up just in the nick of time. But... Yeah. So do you want to you want to take us to 1990? I believe. Or well, wait a minute. No, 1990 plus three years. So 1993, I think. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Mary Alice is chopping up vegetables and Deirdre shows up looking great. She says, I never told anybody about the secret, but I'm cleaned up. I'm in a good place. And Mary Alice is like, well, you can't have him. And Deirdre isn't having that answer and rushes to the stairs to get uh, Dana. Paul pulls her back and pushes her to the floor and Deirdre grabs a poker from the fireplace and cracks him in the head with it. And it's like, I'll give him a good home. Don't worry. Throws the fire poker down and goes back to try to get the baby. And Mary Alice is holding the big knife and stabs her. Shocking. The Mary Alice stabbing her was very unexpected for me. And the reaction, right? She does a lot of face acting there. So the knife goes in and it's almost like she feels like, yes, I, you know, I told you to stay away from me. And then she, and then it feels like it falls upon her. Oh, what did I just do? What did I just do? Yep. So she rushes upstairs and dumps the toys out of the toy chest and tells Zach she needs to borrow it. And they, she brings the toy chest back downstairs and says, well, they're putting in the concrete in the pool tomorrow. And Paul's like, you're not suggesting we do that. Right. And she's like, well, they'll never find her. And she, they kind of assess the size of the body and Paul's like, she'll never fit. And Mary Alice is like, we'll make her fit. And then pulls up her sleeve because I think she wants some validation that she was protecting her kid. And Paul asks what she's doing. And she says, she's looking for tracks to prove she was using again, but she didn't find any. So, so they decide they're going to start this process and who should come down the stairs. That sweet little Zach and sees her on the floor and blood and his parents and kind of puts together what he, the memories that he had that were fuzzy to him, that he comes downstairs, he sees the toy chest, he sees blood, and he asks about he asks about things, and his parents get upset when he asks about things. So all of these things are now making sense to us, if only Zach knew. Mm. With that being said, I'm going to take us back to the quarry, and you're right, Amanda, I'm so happy that you have some validation here. Right? So back in the desert, Mike said Deirdre had a baby. And Paul said, yeah, let's get this over with. So he does feel like he's going to die. And, or at least that's what I'm getting from it. And Mike lifts the gun, points it at Paul, but he just can't do it. And he, and he walks away, leaving Paul in the desert. And I think, or Corey or whatever the place is. And Amanda, what is it that you think that is inspiring this? It's Mike's baby. Which is such a 2004, 2005, who's the daddy? Like all the soaps were doing this at the time. And I remember on Days of Our Lives, Hope was pregnant and they didn't know if it was John's or Bo's or Stefano's. (laughs) Who's the hot mess? So what do you do now if you're Paul Young and you're abandoned in this I'm going to sigh either way. What do you do? You don't have like your Apple watch where you can push that button and they send a helicopter or whatever they do in the commercials. Like what? 
what do you do? You just start walking and hope it works out. But me, I mean, my thought is that I will, whatever way is out, I'm going to walk further into the quarry or desert or whatever it is. Way. You will go the wrong way. So all it is I walk until I die. We may never see him yeah. again. I'm going to ride back with, with Mike so Mike doesn't kill him himself, but maybe it's going to leave him to be dead. Right. Um, That's the end of it. That is the end of it. And so we have Mary Alice saying, it's an odd thing to look back on the world, to watch those I left behind, each in her own way so brave, so determined, and so very desperate. Desperate to venture out, but afraid of what she'll miss when she goes. And we see Lynette looking at our kids. Desperate to get everything she wants, even when she's not exactly sure what that is. And we see Gabby alone in her bedroom. Desperate for life to be perfect again, although she realizes it never really was. And we see Bree. And desperate for a better future, if she can find a way to escape her past. And we see Susan. I not only watch, I cheer them on, these amazing women. I hope so much they'll find what they're looking for. But I know not all of them will. Sadly, that's just not the way life works. Not everyone gets a happy ending. And we see Mike walking into his home, unaware that Zach is there with a gun. Mm. Something I noticed after you pointed this out a couple episodes ago, Bree's wearing green like 100% of the time. Is that just a redheads wear green thing that all redheads look good in green? I don't know. I don't know, but I just, it it jumps out at me now every time I see it. And she does look striking, but I think she looks striking in anything because I saw her in pale blue and she looks great. Every color. Yep. Well, yeah. So Mike walks in and Zach is there with a gun. And so who knows what happens next? It's exactly the cliffhanger we've all been looking for, right? I mean, I just want to take this time and say thank you for taking this project on with me sight unseen just because we were friends from, we were uh, peripheral friends in the academic world. And I said that we had a lot in common. And my next question was, do you watch Desperate Housewives? Because I was desperately hoping (laughs) that I would find somebody who would do this podcast with me. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been really fun. It's a lot of time, but it also, I'm really proud of what we have created and this This journey's been fun to kind of go back through these episodes and talk about things that occurred and kind of compare them to current contexts. And I have appreciated our conversations that we've gotten to have because of this project. And thanks for picking me to do it with you. And I appreciate that we usually don't come we come like they did to the hospital. Like we don't need made faces and we don't need brushed hair. just know each other. So I have two truths and a lie for you. Wrap up. Uh, So number one, Ricardo Antonio Shavira, who plays Carlos, said, in that scene where I lunge at Jesse's character, John, people can see the full rage that is in my character. I looked and Jesse had the most honest look of sheer terror. Stephen Culp said, who plays Rex, said, I knew ahead of time that my character would be killed off this season. I was disappointed, but it really did make me a better actor. I felt like I was always really going for it because I knew time for my character was as ephemeral as it is in our own life. Or number three, Mark Cherry said, the predicament of any working woman is that you can love your career, but there is something, there is something to be said for getting to stay home every day with your kids. And you don't want anyone else to be better at it than you are. In my family, my mom stayed home until eventually our family financially needed her to take work outside the home. And we didn't like it. It's not a very feminist point of view. But our family, it just really worked out that my mom was at home. 
Rex. You are absolutely correct. Oh, gosh. I'm going to have you do these to me. Maybe I'm just getting too predictable or you're just that good. I can't can't tell. (laughs) All right. Well, until next time, I'm Rachel. And I'm Amanda. And thank you for listening to Noisy Fulfillment. Bye, everybody.